Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Okay. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk, your weekly podcast book club. This is a special episode where we are talking about one of my favorite books of the year, Tender is the Flesh. We are going to split this episode into a non-spoiled section and then a spoiled section. So we'll start non-spoiled. Check the show notes for when we start talking about the spoiled section if you want to skip that part. This book is set in a dystopian near future where a virus has infected all the animals and made them inedible so humans can no longer consume them. And in response, the governments have led all the nations through the transition, and now we are eating humans. This book in particular, it's a pretty short story, but it focuses on Marcos. It focuses on him and his current job in this new dystopian world, working at a processing plant for this quote-unquote special meat, but also in his personal life where he has lost his infant son, his wife is working through the grief of that, and his dad is struggling in the throes of dementia. Rough life for Marcos, truly, at this moment. I have so many feelings I can't wait to get started talking about this. But I just feel like we should start on a positive note. So what did you think of this book overall? Well, I love this book. I think it's a book unlike any book I've read before. I personally do not have an issue with what I would call body horror, which I think this book focuses on a lot. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me in movies. I don't know why. It just doesn't. It's not my ick. So I understand why people cannot get through this book because it's pretty gory, which I know we're going to talk about more. I think what the book does really well is ask a lot of questions at the same time without being like preachy or annoying. I think she is just asking a pretty provocative question about what the world would be like and how people would respond to something like this. And we're sort of seeing that through Marco's eyes. Like he is viewing how different people react to this, to this question of who is a human, who's not, what does dehumanization look like? How do we sort of exploit ourselves and each other? And I just felt like this is exactly why I love fiction books. I love fiction books that ask deep questions and I love a dark book. And that's just, that's just me. That's just who I am, Katie. I know. I know. That's, I can't change I who this, I am. <laughs> I read this book for you. So I obviously love who you are, but I did not like this book. I, which is funny. I feel like I understand the point of it. I understand the questions she's asking of like, how do we justify the things we want? How do we dehumanize others for our own gain? Like, I think there's some interesting questions on like capitalism and on eating animals. And I get that, but I feel like this book was, in my opinion, too gory. I feel like it, and I'm not a gory person. So I will give you that. Like I'm, I don't love like body horror. I don't love gory movies, but I think I was trying to explain this to Jen, why the gore is too much for me in this case, because I think that when I watch like Grey's Anatomy or something and they're doing something disgusting, some procedure that's gross, it doesn't freak me out because it is a realistic thing that could happen. And I feel that like, you know, any day could happen today. You could have to have this procedure done or whatever it is. The fact that this is in a near future world, I feel like a lot of the story was in here just for shock value. 
And I feel like it could have done without some of it. Like there is so many pages spent on this like process of how humans are processed. I just felt like it was, in my opinion, gratuitous or not necessary. Because I think that because it is so horrifying, this idea of what humans can do to each other, that you can fill in the blanks. Like it's horrifying on its own and with a little bit of descriptor. And I felt like there was just a lot of it. But I get the idea of asking the dark questions. I think I just would have preferred a little bit more thought on those questions. Right. She is essentially asking the questions without reflecting on them. There's no answer, basically. Marcos is our protagonist. He is abstaining for the most part from eating this special meat, as they call it. And he's also, you know, put in a number of quandaries about what to do. And he, I think, is supposed to be sort of the stand-in for us, who are very obviously uncomfortable with the situation. But she, Augustina does not give you an easy answer there's no way out of this situation is how it feels and how it seems and it, I think that's also how many of us feel with the systems she's commenting on capitalism exploitation even factory farming like it it does feel like well what is Marcus supposed to do you know what is the answer how would this how what would you do against like a government who has already killed all of the animals um, you know, you might not trust their motives, but sort of what do you do in response to that? I think all these questions are really interesting. And I did read a review where she was like, just because I said I liked a book doesn't mean I would ever recommend it. And I think that's maybe a little bit how I feel about this as well. I think these are all really interesting questions. I think my like summary of how I feel about this book is that we could have asked those questions and I could have taken out 15 pages of gore and still felt the stomach churning and still got the point without having to read through a lot of that. I feel like even there are parts where you're like, just skim it, just quick read it. I'm like, I don't have to quick read a book because it's so disgusting. Like, I feel like we could, I don't know, do something better about it. I do think, and I think we would probably need like an expert to weigh in on this, but I do think all of the processes described at the processing plant are how they would process a cow or a pig. Like they basically repurposed this far, this, um, process from an animal processing plant so I agree that it's like it's really a lot and it's gruesome and it's horrible to read but I don't think she invented any of these systems in the processing plant specifically like this is all currently happening to animals and I think her point is like if you just had a thought experiment of what if that wasn't an animal or even you know, some of the most disturbing scenes I think in the book are abuse towards dogs. And it's like, even to a dog, how would you feel? You would feel so much more moral disgust and outrage about that. And so just like, think about why is it so different than just to swap one animal for another, essentially? I do think that is the question that I was kind of grappling with throughout this book. I could not eat meat while I was reading this. I was like, I am... I just need a lot of lettuce. I'm like not doing well. I just like was so, like I feel sick. I read this book so fast because of that part of it. I think, I guess what I'm saying is I prefer darker books where it's more about the psychological horrors. I would have enjoyed a little more discussion about how the people grew to make this decision. How did they get the majority of the population to agree? How did they 
like how did the transition go? How did more, I think I would have just enjoyed more of a discourse about that part of it more than I enjoyed the extended discourse about the actual processing part of it. Because I think there's a lot to think about with how we other animals right now and how we okay that and how we justify that and how when you do switch it on its head and you're like, what if this was a person? What if this was your animal, your pet, your dog? How it then changes the moral compass in a way that it probably shouldn't. We're a lot closer to that. And our animals that we have domesticated are definitely a lot closer to that. So how are we able to justify it? And how are we able to tell ourselves stories that make us okay with the horrors that we put on other people throughout the world? And I think there's something to be said about that part of it. I just wish it would have been more about the process of thinking and how humans do that than it would have been about the specific ways in which we process animals. Have you ever seen the documentaries like Forks Over Knives or, you know, the kind of vegan propaganda documentaries where they (laughs) sort of like go into these plants and show you what they're like? No. I mean, I've seen a couple of them. What was the one on Netflix last year that got like everyone to be a vegan or a couple of years ago? I don't remember. I've seen them all. Cowspiracy, maybe? I don't remember. I've seen a couple. I think that I appreciate them when they are, again, like logical and based in fact in the psychological part of it than when they're like, here's the disgusting part. I don't know. And again, that's probably this human effect that I'm able to like separate that from then what I am eating, which is kind of wild. And like, there's something to explore there as well. Which is exactly, I think the, you know, the point of like why Marcos's plant exists, right? It's like, this is processed in a place that's isolated that's in the middle of nowhere that has these like workers who have to kind of deal with what they are enduring every day um, and go home at night and sort of make peace with it somehow. And then they just ship that product out and you don't know what it is. And it looks like any other piece of meat. And that's sort of like, you know, what happens. I do think it's gross, but I, yeah, I, I, Obviously, that's the point. The gore is the point. It's like it's supposed to be abhorrent and it's supposed to be revolting and it's supposed to turn your stomach. And in the New York Times review of this book, they said it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer and just as effective. Like it's just like blunt force trauma of like, oh, my God. Yeah, this is what they do. And then they have the pregnant women over here and they took out their vocal cords because like meat doesn't talk, you know, and it's just oof, Yeah. But it is a lot. I recognize it's a lot. And this is not a book for everyone. I was, I agree. I think the gore is the point, right? It's supposed to scare the shit out of you. It's supposed to disgust you. It's supposed to be like, can you imagine this? And I understand the provocative part of it. And the part that's like, where is the line between animal and human life? What do you think about that question and how she tried to answer that throughout this book? She's asking that question of where is the line between human, a.k.a. valued life, and non-human, a.k.a. lesser valued life. And I think we have drawn this circle around like people, dogs, and cats. And they're like, this is in the special circle of things that like if you hurt a dog, you can go to prison. But we all, you know, most Americans eat meat all day long and three meals out of the day. So it's. And I think like the more that science is investigating 
animals and their levels of intelligence or levels of awareness, it's just harder and harder to draw that line between, you know, what's a being that can feel pain and what's a being that's like unaware enough for us to inflict pain on them, I guess. I will say I'm definitely considering how much more of my life I can make vegetarian after this. I'm like, So maybe that's the point. But I agree. It is the line between what we value. And there's also this question of how do we value people? Because it's not just are they valuable enough or animals, not people. Yikes. How do we value animals enough across the board? So it's not just we value them enough to not eat them, but it's like do we value them enough to give them what – kind of basic necessities or what kind of life. And then you have all these systems of slavery and systems of oppression, and that's also not valuing people. And so there's kind of this, like, how do we put and how do we determine these like levels of worth of humans, animals, and other living beings? And what does that look like? How do we justify that? And in the book, there are two people, two groups of people with first and last names, as they call it in the book, to differentiate between the subhuman quote unquote species that was bred to be meat and when you can actually legally eat people. And there's two cases at least, well, maybe not legally, but there's two cases in the book where they talk about people that are able to be eaten. The first is sex workers. So they talk about how, you know, there's these prostitutes and if you pay extra or pay like a certain amount, you can eat them after you have sex with them. And there are celebrities who are in debt. Which is just, what a fascinating, what two fascinating cases to draw. This is, so these are her, you know, she's also saying there are people who we dehumanize. I think sex workers is a very obvious one that we think that they are not worth anything, bought for a price treat them terribly that parallel I think makes sense and then going after celebrities in debt I thought that was a really a left turn I think she's making a comment on you know our idols that we tear down how we you know like to see the mighty fall and sort of rejoice in that I was thinking of like Gary Busey or like the celebrities that would do this And the hunters who hunt these celebrities are, like, super okay with it and are, like, enjoy the fact that they're eating a famous person. And that also kind of speaks to celebrity culture. I do think the parallel of celebrity culture is super interesting. They are, again, othering them to being people. It's it's this kind of, like, am I jealous of them? Do I hate them because they had what I couldn't have and then they ruined it? And so it's, like this weird reason why they're they're okay with it and why they're even like rejoicing in it. I think there's something to be said too about the like desperation of people in that much debt that they're willing to sacrifice their entire life to get out of it because of how crushing that is for you. So this is kind of what I was saying about the different the different levels of human value and the different levels of animal value that we essentially just make up and then everyone falls in line and agrees with and it's because of how you present it and how you, again, tell the story to people so that they feel okay about the kind of discrimination and or decisions that they're making. You help them justify it. So if you're listening to this part and you haven't read the book, the way that Marcos intersects with all these groups is because he's a higher up in the processing plant, he is visiting or interacting with in the course of his business all of the people who then like purchase meat from the processing plant or supply meat to the processing plant, 
which I think is a genius way to show us the different entry and exit points of this system and comment on exploitation from multiple angles. So we have the hunters, we've got scientists, we have uh, suppliers, and you know, within that, we have a different cast of characters and also a different place where either animals or people are being exploited currently. Right. I was talking about right before this podcast and I was like, I wonder if I'll change my mind from this two-star review I'm about to give. <laughs> and I would just like to say, I think that these questions and being able to have this in-depth discussion about the parallels between this book and the world does make me appreciate it more. I don't know that it rakes up my stars because I still feel like we could eliminate a couple of the gore, but I think that this commentary is why people read books like this. Well, okay. First of all, we've just gotten started. So I have much more time to convince you that I li- to like this book. <laughs> fair. Okay. It's not gonna She's happen, just making fair. a face at me. <laughs> <laughs> you can do your best. I think I'm pretty solid in this opinion, but I am. Yeah. I don't think that. You know, I don't think to like a book, it means you have to enjoy it. I don't think it has to be an enjoyable experience to read. I think it can be provocative. I think that's what this book is. I think it's provocative. I think we have a lot of similar fiction interests. And I think where our interests diverge is like in this area, in this body horror provocative area and in the Otessa era. Like, I think those are the two kind of parts where it diverges. And I think that I enjoy this book better than the Otessa books because I feel like there's a lot of commentary and a lot of like deep thinking that can come from it once you kind of get through the gore and the revolting stuff you have to read to get here. Now that I'm here and I've survived it. Did you sort of acclimate to the gore towards the end of the book? Like, did it stop being so shocking? I don't think so because I feel like I don't I really don't think that it did for me. And again, I am a pretty pretty easily queasy person. As anybody who works with me in my real life job will tell you, like I am I do not do well when I have to deal with something that is like a little bit queasy and I don't think it gets a lot better for me. But and I think as soon as I started to feel semi okay about the book because I got into the story. So, if you haven't read it, how it happens is it starts with like kind of a lot of gore. It's really in your face in the beginning about the process of processing people. But then you get this middle section where you're really focused on Marcos and you're focused on like his relationship with his sister and him dealing with the grief of this child and his aging parent and him reckoning with what his job means. And that part, that character study part was really interesting to me in how he was kind of unraveling this world that he's in but then the puppy scene happens and my whole world was just turned upside down and I was like I cannot read this like I did it to skip that section I could not do it it was horrible to read and so I feel like as soon as I started to feel okay in this book it just like the bottom would drop out again yeah I don't even know what trigger warnings you would put on this book but I feel like just pretty much all of them but I also feel the same way that like one of the more disturbing scenes and we won't say exactly what happens, but there is like animal abuse. And obviously we are in a world where all animals have been killed. So everyone had to kill their pets basically, which is really sad. And then there's these like kind of wild dogs. And I had the same reaction, which is that like the puppies are the hardest 
to think about, which is in and of itself crazy. Like, I do think this also happens with movies where you're like, you know, you're watching a battlefield scene and they kill 500 people and someone gets stabbed in the heart and you're like, ooh. And then they kill a horse and you're like, the horse? It's just so weird. We have somehow like this, there is some violence against people that we're acclimated to or that we're used to. Obviously this book pushes it way farther, way more to the extreme, but there's some special set of empathy that we have for like dogs and cats that we do not apply to people, which I think is really, she knew, I, she knew that that was going to be the most disgusting scene. And it was, and that in and of itself is like very interesting. Like why, why is that so much worse? I don't know. I don't know why it's so much worse. Cause you're right about the battlefield scene and then it being an animal, but maybe it's something to do with the fact that Animals are less flawed, I think, than humans. I think this is, again, back to, like, the stories we tell ourselves. It's really hard to be, like, a dog deserved that or a dog. And I don't believe that, obviously, anybody deserves any of these things, to clarify. But I think, again, about how we justify things, like, this seems like an unflawed animal without the ability to hurt in the same way that humans can. And I feel like people just tell stories. They're like, well to distance themselves from it. I think it's harder to do with an animal in this. That makes me sound like I would just kill humans. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I think it's something to be said about the fact that they can't talk or interact or be flawed. I don't know if that's true or not. No, I, I agree. But I think again, when we say that about animals, we really just mean dogs and cats because people eat, people breed and eat baby cow. Like that is just a fact and like specifically will buy baby cows who have never been able to walk before like it's and so we just have a line where it's like well this baby animal is fine to torture and kill this baby animal is not also again sorry this is just like right this is also right down my alley because I haven't eaten meat I I'm a pescatarian now but I've been vegan for a large part of my adult life and vegetarian for my the majority of my life so Again, this is like right up my alley. And I think I'm never one to think that like shocking people into eating less meat is effective because I think usually it lasts for a couple of weeks and then people kind of get back to it. But I do think it's like worth asking why we have this moral line for some animals and not others. I think for me, whenever I think about eating more vegetarian or eating more vegan or, or whatever, it's the this discussion behind it makes me want to do it more than the shock value, which makes me want to just like compartmentalize that into another part of my brain where I don't have to reckon with it. Whereas like having the conversation about it and trying to like ask myself those questions, why do I draw that line? Why is that line okay to draw? And how am I justifying that? And is that what I want to value? Is that what I want to be living out? That conversation to me is more interesting than the shock factor. Because I think when things are that shocking or dramatic or traumatic, I'm like, oop, you're going in a tiny little box that I will never open again. Thank you so much. And I will just go back to eating my normal life. So living my normal life, not eating my normal life. <laughs> I mean that too. Also eating my normal life. <laughs> All right. Let's switch to a spoiled section now because we're dancing around some key plot points that are going to add to the themes that we talked about. So if you are not spoiled and you want to read this book because we gave you just like really arousing uh, <laughs> review. <laughs> um, 
We'll see you in Talk Talk then. So welcome to the spoiled section. This part is really about, I think for me, it's a lot about the ending, which I need to process here. But halfway through the book-ish, Marcos is out and he is meeting with somebody who, I can't remember if it's a supplier or what, I think it's a supplier. And it it's not going well. And as a kind of consolation prize, the supplier has a human, a human head, they call it a female, right, delivered to his house. And he's just given her. Um, this is like, he will let somebody be like, here's a puppy, have fun, except for that it's a human. Um, and he ends up kind of developing this deep and personal connection with this other person who can't speak and doesn't have really the ability to think the same way that Marco says because of how she was raised and how she's been treated. What did you think about this kind of gift of the woman and then how he kind of slowly humanizes her by enveloping her into his life, giving her a name and giving her and seeing how she can easily still be kind of just like him. It's hard to talk about Jasmine without talking about how their relationship evolves and how it ends. And I at first was like, Oh, he is going to free her. But of course, she can't be freed. She's branded. There's like she would not know what to do with freedom. Again, very parallel to like animals and processing plants. Like, what are we going to do? Just open the doors and let them go? Right. There's like not a clear answer for it. And I think that's that's part of the thing that I think is really frustrating you about this book is like there's no easy way out of it. And because there's not an easy way out of our current systems. So she originally is like staying in the barn. He gives her food. He, you know, talks to her, but is essentially keeping her like locked in the barn when he's gone. And then the book has like passages of time that I think are also very effective because then we sort of jump forward. They have sex. Fascinating. I was like, hmm, (laughs) Marcos, I have a question. Uh, Okay. Anyways. Um. Then <laughs> What's she's in the house, but while she's in the house, well, so that point just sort of happens really quickly. Yeah, and you're like, hmm, I think he just raped her. Like, yeah, I, like how is this person gonna give consent in this situation? This is like a very strange moment, but it's very like we still sort of are trusting Marcos at that point, and we're like, oh, he wants the best for her maybe she was into it I don't know like we kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt and then we flash forward and he's like introduced her into the house and he's teaching her how to like cook and how to watch tv and like how to use the bathroom and all this stuff but he still keeps her locked up in a room but he plays that as that's for her safety right like he's like I have to do this because I have to put her in a, in a room with a mattress and food and water because if I let her roam free, she could hurt herself or our baby because at this point, Jasmine is pregnant. And so he – I do feel like you're kind of empathetic with Marcos this whole situation. You're like he's – it's got to be – she's got to have given consent in some way, right? And you're like there's no way she could give consent. This is not okay. But you are kind of wrapped into Marcos's story and into his – heart and who he is and so you are again just justifying this like pretty fucked up situation 
Yes. And you're like, oh, he's a good guy, right? And then at the end, she goes into labor and he knows like he can't take her to the hospital because they would both be killed, basically. Like this is definitely illegal to have impregnated her. And he calls his estranged wife to come over, who is a nurse. She helps deliver the baby. And then in the end, he takes Jasmine out to kill her and like basically wants to keep this baby to replace the baby that he lost in his mind and to raise this baby with his wife. Which, okay, so what did you think about that as the ending? And then we can talk about him and Jasmine and their relationship. I was fully shocked by that. I did not expect him to like walk her outside and kill her. I think it's hard though, because I'm like, what is the more compassionate answer? Right. I mean, again, I think the more compassionate answer is letting Jasmine live and taking care of her forever. But he's putting himself, his wife and now his baby at risk by doing that. And I think, like you said earlier, this is the part that for me was really hard because there isn't a an easy or a good answer because this entire situation is risky for everybody involved. And I think that he is emotionally not well and he is using Jasmine and this baby to fix and replace a life that is gone instead of actually dealing with any of it. He's got a lot of grief he's trying to fill with it. I was like a little shocked he had it in him, but I think even now, like knowing Marcos, I'm like, did he do that? Because he thought that that was the most compassionate and easy out. And that maybe then he could save himself, his wife and his kid. And are we making one of those awful choices here? I don't know. I feel like that ending was rough to read but what did you think of it and how it ended for him and Jasmine my best guess of like what Augustina is trying to say with this ending is that people use other people to get what they want and he is unique from the other characters in the book in that he doesn't really want to eat meat he's sort of like doing this job just to get paid for his dad so he is allowing these moral atrocities that he does not agree with because he needs money and Fair enough. There's a lot of things that we do because we need money in life, moral and immoral. I get that. But then in the end, we see that like, oh, this is like an even deeper psychological issue with him, which is like what he really needs is to replace his child who is tragically passed. What he really needs is like a new baby to sort of fix his life with his wife. And Jasmine is the way to get there. And as soon as she fulfills that, like she's not worth life anymore. And it's like this conditional... Your life is worth living because of what you can provide to the economy. Your life is worth living because you could do this and you could do this. Like, I think it's um, a commentary on how he just wanted, he thought Jasmine was worth living when he realized what she could give him. And then as soon as she got, he got what he wanted, she's no longer worth living. Do you think he felt that way the whole time about Jasmine when he's like coming home to her every day before she before the reality of what having a baby and before the reality of the inspector coming to the house, do you think that like the entire time he was thinking, this is what this woman will give me? Or do you think he, it was maybe like a recognition once he was confronted with the realities of his world? I've heard that other people have gone back and reread this book to sort of pick out like Marcos's, moral trajectory I do think it's something that like once you know that it would change how you read the entire rest of the book so it would be interesting 
for other people, not you, because you're not ever going to read this again, but to like reread this and sort of see where maybe this was building up or where he made this choice in his mind. Because I saw, I did not see it coming at all. It caught me completely off guard. I didn't like anticipate that. So I have no idea when he formulated this plan or when it clicked, maybe when his wife showed up. And he realized like, oh, wife that I love, baby that I want, our family's back together, everything's fallen into place. Um, I think most of the time he treats Jasmine like a dog. And that parallel is pretty obvious, like keeping her in the barn, bringing her in the house, but locking her in a room all day, even like watching her from his phone. It just reminded me of all the people who have like puppy cams that they'll like watch. They'll be like, oh, it's so cute. She's sleeping. For me, I'm like, I feel like I was caught off guard because I believed in Marcos and believed that he had semi-honorable intentions with Jasmine and for it to just be shattered is like, oh, and it begs that question too, right? Is this inside of all people? Is this like potential for horror inside of all people? Which is a scary question to be asking. Exactly. And that I think is also why I liked that this was the ending because the ending is not that Margos is outside of this structure. He's very much a part of it. And within the structure that is exploitative and immoral, he's like carved out ways to feel like he is morally superior while also doing things that we can all agree are wrong. Yeah. I, oh, I just knew, as soon as he slept with her, I was like, wait, Marcos, <laughs> um, what's going on? When they found out she's pregnant, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you were just going to like let her live in the house and let her live her life. Of course not. I was also like, oh, men, gross. There's two other storylines that I want to talk about how they sort of evolved. So what did you think about his sister and how he treats her, Marissa and her kids, and the funeral at her house? I did not like Marissa. (laughs) I felt like their relationship felt estranged, obviously. I think this is the part for me about this book that I didn't like as well, besides like the what I felt was unnecessary gore. I feel like there wasn't enough character development or time spent with these characters for me to really have a super emotional connection or opinion about them and about what happened. I think that on the surface, Marissa seems like a very self-obsessed person who's concerned about her own life and her kids and fitting into society. And I think that she wants to be seen as doing the right thing, but doesn't really have like a, a strong moral compass and has really made peace with like what she'll do to other humans. Like she ends up getting like a cold room in her house to like keep a human that she's going to slowly kill, which is like insane. And I feel like he does put up that boundary. Like this is not okay. Again, an arbitrary boundary created to create this sense of moral superior, you know, superiority. But what did you think of it? There are a lot of hateable characters in this book. And yet I think everyone also hates Marissa again, fascinating because what does marissa really want she wants status she wants to be seen and respected by other people she is cheap she doesn't want to pay for things um at her house you know she wants to get ahead from marcos and it's interesting that she is much more hateable i think than say the guy who's running the hunting lodge who is just like 
why are you embarrassed? This is people going to do what people do. <laughs> people are exploitative. People are violent by nature. I think it's great that we are like now it's out in the open, basically. That guy was For some reason, was he's like, like just very open. Exactly. He's like very openly a bad guy. And yet you're kind of like, well, he said it out loud. Like he's being I honest. I think that's a part least. of it though, right? You're, he is reckoning with what this means and what the human experience is. And she's just like every other materialistic girl who just wants to be seen as like the one who hosts a great party. I don't know. I did not like her. Okay. So we hated Marissa, but I think it's a good, like what? I think there's some like gender aspect to that. And also that we accept immorality for a lot of reasons, but immorality to gain status or to get recognition by others is something we like uniquely detest. I would agree with that. Just interesting. Yeah. Okay. The other story is we have this church of immolation. I think they're called. Oh my God. I forgot about them where they self-sacrifice. What did you think about the religious storyline and element, which sort of comes out of nowhere? I just feel like it came out of nowhere. I've already forgotten about it. I'm not really sure if it was necessary to be included now that I'm like, was that important? It, is a contrast to basically everybody else who's compartmentalizing this awful thing that we're doing to each other. And they're just like facing it head on. It felt very like cultish to be like, people need you and this is the right thing. And you're going to come to something greater and people want to be, they want to belong to something and they want to feel like their life has greater meaning and they're giving them that. And then when the people are actually confronted with giving their life for something, we're like, wait a minute. And they freak out and then they have to be drugged. I'm like, this is a whole that's part of kind of bringing the human aspect into it and how things can be weaponized. But I don't know that that part was necessary. What did you think of it? I like that it's in there. I don't think the religious aspect is developed too much. I think basically what she's saying with that is like, you can have these religious convictions and you can really believe, but like when it comes down to you're the one who's about to die, they all sort of lose their nerve. It's like there's a limit to how much, how far this rationalization can go. And similarly, like there's only so far that the rationalizations that the government has given them for why they're under this situation, the rationalizations for why, you know, it's okay to eat ahead but not sleep with them. Like we're given all of these stories and they're sort of only so good to a point. Right. Right. I mean, that's kind of essentially how I felt about the book in general, right? I feel like this was a very interesting conversation. And while I don't think that this book for me is the way that I like to have these conversations, and I don't think my rating of it is still super high because of the level of gore and the kind of parts that I felt like were undeveloped, I am, I did really enjoy this conversation and like the dialogue about the larger themes. So part of me is like, is that why we have books like this so that we can confront these bigger questions? I still don't know that I like it, but I guess that I I get it a little bit more. I also like that she is asking these really hard, almost intractable moral dilemmas that we sort of face every day. And she doesn't give an answer because there's not an easy answer, right? It's like, Okay, so, you know, I am, I think like the planet would be much better off and people would be much better off if we ended factory farming. Well, if I had a button and I pushed that button and ended factory farming, it would be chaos. I mean, there are so many people 
low income workers who depend on that, you know, employment. There are people who cannot afford to eat vegan food who can't don't know aren't aren't taught how to like cook meals without meat in it. Like there's just so much sort of path dependencies to where we are now that there is no easy way out. And I think to end it on a note where there was or there was an option would have been disingenuous, but it makes the book much more about asking questions than it is giving answers. I think she just wants to like lay bare for you what she considers like the end result of capitalism, which is like people devouring each other, period, full stop, where like those who have a comfortable life have so because they've like built it on this on a level of horror and disgust that if we were really faced to look at it would have us question everything. And that's her thesis. And I think she delivers on that in many ways in like, especially like as a scientist, the mo- I, I thought like the most evil character is like the scientist who is doing these horrific experiments on people that reminded me a lot of the experiments in Nazi Germany that they did on people where it was like, oh, finally, we don't have to use rats. Let's like finally do all these studies we've wanted to do for so long on humans. Right. Oof. Yeah, I can see that point. Um, I did read a Nazi book right before this, so I feel like I could, there was a lot of parallels I felt reading that as well right after this. So again, the dehumanization and the, and the themes that we were able to discuss with this, I think are worth having a conversation about. Overall, are you giving this a five out of five? Yes, I love this book. But I do agree with you. I, I don't know who I would recommend this book to. I don't know what, like, I would have to ask a lot of questions about, like, before I would recommend this to someone. Yeah. Because it's really, it's rough. It's a rough read, for sure. Yeah. I just don't think I'm, like, a rough read kind of girl. And so I feel like I still just stick to my two or three. I guess I'll, oh, no, I'm going to change it. I think I'll say a three out of five because I think that, Sometimes you have to go through this like hard traumatic read or experience to be able to ask the questions and have the discussions. And I appreciate that. So I guess I have to like up it to a three, even though I still, I, yeah, even if I give it a three, I still can't think of one person who I'd be like, I think you should read this book without a lot of trigger warnings and a lot of like, where are your lines? What are your boundaries when you're reading? <laughs> Cause I'm about to break them all. <laughs> Yikes. I also love a book that's just different. I, think I know you do. I never read a book like this and I never will again. <laughs> this is like when people are like, I love an Oscars movie because of like the lighting and because of like, it's just, a, it's just like a filmmaking masterpiece. And I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I want a good story. I hate it here. <laughs> a lot of friends who love the Oscars movies. So, you know, fine. I will. I do agree. I think she could have spent another 50 pages getting us to care a little bit more about Marcos I but then I don't know what would happen with the twist because already people were really surprised and shocked because it was like wait we trusted this guy this guy was supposed to be one of the good guys so if she made him even more of a good guy it would have been even more of a betrayal I I guess in the end I do think though some of the stories I'm a little she just nodded to so like there is an illusion that this is all made up by the government. So the, the animal um, virus doesn't actually exist. And it, you know, is a way, a convenient way for governments to deal with overpopulation and poverty and like multiple issues. 
but she doesn't really lean too heavily into whether there is an answer if that's true or not. And same thing, like, who are the scavengers? Where do they come from? What does that even mean? I think there's some storylines that maybe could have had a little bit more. I think this is such a shocking story. There's a lot of ways that you could take this, a lot of places and things you could comment on. And I feel a little bit like my lower rating of this book is because I feel like she tried to comment on a lot of things, right? On, like, different levels of humans, on religion, on – yeah, and, like, none of it's really built out. I think the Marcos storyline is almost one I don't – I didn't feel compassionately about them, but I think I just wanted more on some parts of it, like on these different stories or on how humans got to this point of accepting something that so many of us would say currently we would never, but it also feels like in reading this book, it's not that far off. So how did we get from A to B and how can we not do the A to B pipeline in the real world? So she does have one thesis too about how this has happened and how part of how this has happened is the way we use language and the way we use words to sort of cover what we actually mean. So I thought of like enhanced interrogation tactics, which is like words used to cover up torture. And Marcos comments on that a lot, how there's words like special meat or how there are specific like names of cuts that then they start using to make it seem better than the way it is. And so I think that's also part of what we do is we use coded language really strategically to make people okay with things they wouldn't otherwise be okay with. I do think that's very interesting. And I think that the commentary on how words obscure things or change the meaning or hide what you're doing is very interesting. I think that's like 90% of corporate culture and also of like anything that we're not really okay with, like you were saying, like torture, et cetera. I think that's all in there like how again how can we how can we tell this story to the people all right well I think I got out all that I wanted to say I just I'm gonna think about this book forever I'm gonna be able to tell you about this book I feel like it's just really gonna stick with me I would agree with that I would also say I was vegetarian when I was 16 years old and the options at that point were pretty terrible. I think now and in the future, we're going to get to a place where meat substitutes and or lab grown meat. I think it's going to replace a lot of the need for factory farming. So just consider it. Try an impossible burger. Get it at a restaurant where they cook it for you. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. I'm kind of like the incremental changes too, right? Like I feel like a lot of what I, what I do is like try to not eat meat like for two or three dinners a week and be like, okay, we're eating impossible burgers tonight. We're having a vegetarian pasta tonight. And then it's like incremental changes because you do have to learn to do that part of it. And I think a lot of what happens in these lifestyle, it happens with environmental things as well, is we have a very all or nothing view of it. So either you like recycle and compost everything and literally never get a straw at Starbucks or you are a horrible person. (laughs) It's like there's no, the incremental changes and the things that you can do, do matter as well. And so do large corporations doing their share. But anyways. (laughs) No, I agree. And I think it's part, it's, you know, part of the issue that comes about with vegans and especially like militant vegan is that like the answer is you cannot eat any of it ever at all in any form right where for the majority of people they're not going to do that it's not possible it's not feasible for them and we would be much better off convincing people to try a meatless monday yes than to abstain from all animal byproducts so and I what impact agree, would that have? i think right 
I do think um, Ezra Klein has done a lot about this. I think in terms of environmental impact, one of the best things you can do is give up chicken. And just putting that out there. Just think about it. I think the issues in this book are much bigger than vegan and vegetarianism. And I care a lot more about the workers and people that are being exploited, right. honestly, at this point in my life than I do the cows. But it's something to think about in the wake of this book. Something to consider. Talk, talk. Talk, talk. Okay, before we do this, I have to tell you, on my walk today, because it, this morning's part where we talked about Tender as the Flesh, I said I don't know who I would recommend this book to. That's a lie because uh, Alexa, who follows me on Instagram, got Tender as the Flesh, read it, loved it. I would have recommended it to her. And well, you can't, you I can't thought, a hindsight no, no. recommend it to someone who liked it after they read it. That's bullshit. She read it. <laughs> Because I posted about it, I do think she would have liked it. I actually thought of two or three other friends also who I would recommend this book to. So I take it back. Five out of five. Ugh. No no complaints. No complaints? Not a complaint at oh all. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. So you read Tenders of Flesh. Well, you already read that previously. What did you read this yeah. week? I am three quarters of the way through Real Life by Brandon Taylor, which I am loving this book is about Wallace, who is a black gay man who is a grad student. He's from Alabama, and he is getting his Ph.D. at an unnamed high-status school somewhere in, like, the Midwest, I think. And it's a story of, like, his friend group, which is comprised of his cohort, other people who are in similar research fields, and how things kind of go awry for the friend group through a series of dramatic events it is incredible I also feel when he describes his like research I'm like oh is this what I sound like to other people because he's in like a wet lab so he's doing research on animals and it's like very very uh descriptive and like procedural almost aka mm. it's boring right that was the adjective we were getting close to. Brandon is such a good writer. He makes it worth it. And you're like really rooting for Wallace to figure it out and for things to be okay. That sounds great. I can't wait to hear how it ends. I can't wait to see if you still like it at the end. Lovely. Obviously this week I read Tender as a Flesh so that I could discuss it with you. And I read it very, very quickly. Um, and I still feel like it was disturbing. And you all know that now because you listen to me talk about it and give it 2.5 stars for this entire podcast. I also you read said a three. book. You said three, by the <sighs> way. Okay. Okay. I read a book called When We Were Bright and Beautiful by Jillian Medoff. This book was in my book of the month club this month. And I thought it was really – so it's about a super wealthy family living in New York, and their youngest son, Billy, is accused of rape. He And he goes to Stanford. He's like white, privileged, athletic. You know the type. You've read the story. And so it is about his, it's from his sister, his adopted sister's point of view. And she comes home to like be with the family during this time as they like present kind of like a united front behind him. And it's her point of view um, and kind of the family, the family dealing with it. But in the, in the trial, all of their other kind of deepest, darkest secrets are obviously going to come out as well because nobody comes out of this unscathed. I think that 
a couple of the critiques I've read of it were that like we don't need a nuanced point of view that humanizes people, you know, rapists and, and people who do sexual assault, et cetera, who do sexual assault. It's not what I meant to say, but people, <laughs> perpetrators, my God, of sexual assault and rapists. We don't need to like provide a nuanced view of it because it humanizes them. In my opinion, like I don't think we need to provide an apologetic view of it. And I don't think that this book does, but I do think that they are humans and there's still like something to study about like how this, I don't know, how it affects the families who are also involved in this tangentially like she Cassie is not in it but also is in it as his sister I also heard a critique that it was like um a lot of the plot lines were similar to the Brock Turner trial that would be a little bit gross and I truly don't know that trial well enough to know if it is I thought that it was dramatic I did not see the twist coming I like the whole time I was just like I have got to figure out what happens to this kid I have to figure out what happens to this family I was pretty captivated by it. And I think the ending was realistic and I think that she did a good job. I really feel like though, I just finished it literally 30 minutes ago. So maybe I need to process it a little bit more. And I would like to have a like nuanced discussion with somebody about it. I think this is like a really provocative topic. And so I need to discuss it and process it with someone, I think. But overall, I thought the writing was good. I thought the courtroom drama, which I do love, was also good and well done. So I thought it was really good. Ooh, maybe I'll see if they have it at the library. Yeah, I feel like if you could read it and then talk to me about it and be like, this is what I think, or like without any other, without reading reviews and stuff on it, I will say obvious trigger warnings for for sexual assault, for um, that's probably a good enough one. It's dark, but nuanced. I don't want to say I'm empathetic. I think that we have a very serious misunderstanding of who commits sexual assault and who commits intimate partner violence, which, as the name suggests, like people are usually in these situations. It's usually perpetrated by someone they know, someone they're close to, someone they're in a relationship with, someone they like on a date without like all these things. It's just not this like dark alleyway stranger coming out of nowhere, wearing a mask. You never see them again. And we have to like realize that a lot of the people who commit this probably wouldn't even think that they did anything wrong or it was a misunderstanding or whatever. It's their boyfriend. You know, I don't know. I think it's worth like asking better questions about it because clearly whatever we're doing is not working and like the prototype we have for this is off like whatever we're doing and however we're talking about it isn't working right it's not we're not it's not getting better in the same sense of it and I feel like by reducing it to there's no story here there is nothing to gain nothing to learn no one else is affected in the same way that's worth talking about when it is this story that we've heard before and this caricature of a person that we already think that we know, I think we are, I think there is still questions to be asked. And I'm not saying that like he's, you know, should be let go or that it's forgivable or that anything is okay. Like I don't believe any of that, but I still feel like there has to be some more discussion around it. And I mean, this book gets pretty, gets pretty fucked up. Like it's pretty dark. That's not the only kind of dark thing that happens in it. But again, I think that it hearing the story from her point of view is very interesting. And I think it would, this story would be completely different and a completely different book if you heard it from any of the other characters point of view. 
I thought Cassie was kind of annoying, but I also feel like by the end I was empathetic with her and I, you know, understood her more as a person. So that speaks kind of to the character development too. I'm intrigued. I also think it's a provocative question too for a lot of people who came, became more radicalized in the wake of like the 2020 riots and things of like being more, we should question police, we should question jails, we should question this the types of punishments that we have because we still want to punish things that are wrong and we still want people to face consequences but what do those consequences actually look like and how do you have justice like in the way of like serving out punishment and also providing people a path forward to grow and be better it's a tough tough question yeah it's the whole transformative justice question right it's like who yeah, how do you move forward and how do you hold that up inside of a community together and outside of these systems of which we're the only way that we know how to currently do it? How do you build it outside of there in a way that's like justice for people who are hurt, but also, I don't know. I mean, what do you do with the perpetrators? How do you, are they all completely unredeemable? Like, how do you also handle that part of it? And I think that's where it gets messy but also intriguing to kind of figure out I also I forgot I finished another book okay what was your other book <laughs> I was just waiting for you to ask me what it was called well uh, I'll ask the you plot oh you oh did you like it I thought you were loving it I wasn't loving it I did okay. find it entertaining it's a good again as the name of the book is so the story like I talked about on last week's episode is about a sort of burnt out writer who was once sort of promising and is now sort of a failed author who teaches at MFA programs. And one of his students who's very cocky and very unlikable says like, I don't even need this class. I have a plot that's like going to be super successful. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. He tells his professor the plot. Eventually the professor steals the plot and writes the book. And then it's sort of like what happens after that. And first of all, that's a great plot. Second of (laughs) all, what happens after that, I think is also really interesting. I think it's a tough book because it's long and the main character is not likable. Like he's just not. And like you sort of want, you're kind of cheering for him to experience the downfall. But then when it comes, it doesn't feel as surprising maybe. Right. It did have some pretty good twists. Even like what you know of the plot, I think is still pretty surprising. So you sort of hear about the plot of this book that doesn't exist and you're very intrigued and it takes a while before you read what actually happens in the book itself. At the same time, there's the book that you're reading. So it's sort of like a meta fiction-esque book. There's the plot of right. a character who stole the plot. That also has a great plot and a couple of good twists to it so it's got plot on plot on plot (laughs) the book has a good plot and then the plot within the book also has a good plot and i'm like gene how did you do this gene tell us your secrets how did you do such a good plot did you steal it Ooh, i know but now i'm like damn all you need is a good plot to write a book too bad i don't have a good plot (laughs) But that seems like easier to come up with than the rest of the things I thought you needed. (laughs) Talent, time, you know, it's like, 
money mm. and, and in publishing. If all you have to do is want a good story, like. Well, that's one of the questions that the book raises is like, what does it actually take to be successful? Because mm. both of them, the person, the original author and the author who then took it immediately recognized like this is so good. It almost doesn't matter. You just need like a basic level of writing to get this book into everybody's hands it will be a success because of the plot it's so original just like strictly based on that interesting Mm -hmm. okay is that it did you forget any other books that's it okay i mean that's pretty good so we'll take it okay all right well see you not next week see you the week after that because next week we're going to start reading our next book club read which is all this could be different by sarah think and matthews Okay, I'm so excited to read that book. I've completely forgot what it's about, so I'm I'm gonna be excited too. Yay! <laughs> book talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. While I believe that Brandon is a good writer, I'm just dying at you with your like knees tucked up, slightly tipsy. Like Brandon is such a good writer. <laughs> I love him. <laughs>